0: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 1.18, Claudia Octavia, A Wife's Ruin. Welcome to the final stretch of this first season, where we will cover the wives of Nero, who, as we shall see, are also the final empresses of Rome's Julio-Claudian era. Today, we will look at his first wife, a woman who we've actually already met a few times, Claudia Octavia. Then, in the next few episodes, we'll look at Nero's other wives in turn, and finally, therefore, wrapping up this first series. We may not have women as powerful or influential as Livia and Agrippina coming up, but some of the stories that I'm going to tell you are absolutely fascinating. I'd also like to thank my new patrons, Mary Pat, Annie, and Kelsey. Thanks so much, you guys. You are amazing. If you'd like to become a patron of this podcast, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast and sign up for as little as a dollar a month. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. well, let's just say a very complicated relationship with the women in his life. He married three times, to women at least, while also having pseudo-marriages with two men as well. Let's not forget too that he had an extreme hot and cold relationship with his mother, which also featured some weird sex stuff that I touched on last time. Including Agrippina, of these four women, three of them died during Nero's lifetime, and he was probably behind all of them. Nero was a very odd individual, to say the least. He was certainly not the most mentally stable man about, and this was compounded by having had absolute power thrust upon him while still a teenager. This wasn't exactly a good recipe for success, and sure enough, it ended in disaster. History has, though, labelled him as a tyrant, drawing from the descriptions in Tacitus, Suetonius, and Cassius Dio, And while that isn't completely wrong, it doesn't tell the whole story. Now, this isn't the place for a reappraisal of Nero's reign, but it is worth briefly looking at how this view of Nero as a tyrant becomes expressed in the sources. Ancient historians, not entirely unlike their modern counterparts, like to add narrative arcs and structures to their works, fitting their subjects into recognisable stereotypes. Therefore, Viewing Nero as they did as a wrongan, they wanted to fashion him into a character that their audience could truly hate. They weren't likely inventing things out of nothing that would be too easily exposed. Instead, they were exaggerating known traits and faults, and inventing bits to fill in the gaps. We saw this happen with Caligula. He certainly was an unstable and cruel emperor, but some of the stories of his murderous brutality were definitely exaggerated. With Nero, our ancient historians chose to throw a different kind of classic evil trope at him, that of an oversexed, feminised man. It started, of course, with the view of him as being a mummy's boy with an Oedipus complex, and we'll see it further develop over the next two episodes. But I wanted to mention it now, just so that you're aware of why he's being portrayed in the way that he will be. Moving on to his wives, it will shock you, shock you, to hear that we don't have nearly as much information about these women as I would have liked. And this is likely a big reason behind the fact that there is barely any modern scholarship about any of them. In terms of influence, none of them get close to Livia or Agrippina, not even really to Messalina. But they are no less interesting for that. So let's get stuck in, starting with Claudia Octavia. She was born in around 40 CE to Claudius and his third wife, Valeria Messalina. She was named first for her father and second for her great-grandmother, Octavia Minor, the sister of the Emperor Augustus. While her birth would have been a happy occasion for both her parents, it was not met with nearly the same fanfare as that of her brother Britannicus a year or so later. This was for two big reasons. The first was that he was a man, and therefore better able, in Roman eyes, to advance the family name. And second, because, in between their births, their father had unexpectedly become Emperor of Rome. This accident of assassination completely changed the course of Octavia's life. When she had been born, she was merely the third daughter of the eccentric and handicapped uncle of a young Emperor, who seemed set to dominate Rome and her empire for decades. She, assuming she survived the cutthroat and debauched Caligulan court, could have looked forward to a decent marriage, given her family background, and would have likely become a footnote in history. But, as soon as her father done the purple, she suddenly became a pawn in the new emperor's political and dynastic game. This quickly became apparent when, while still only an infant, Octavia was betrothed to Lucius Solanus. This was a major part of Claudius' plans for the succession. He'd come to the throne after a coup had toppled and murdered his nephew, and he was well aware of the low opinion that most of Roman society had of him. It was imperative for the safety of the dynasty that he ensured that, should anything happen to him, the rule of the empire would remain in the family, so that civil war might be averted. He had his son, of course, but a baby could not rule an empire, and there was no guarantee that he would even survive to rule. He needed backups. And so he married off not only Octavia, but also her half sister Antonia as well, to prominent Romans. These men would therefore be in a position to father new grandchildren for Claudius and possibly act as guardians as well. Now, we've met Lucius Solanus before, but here's a quick recap. Lucius Junius Silanus Torquatus, to give him his full name, was born in 26 CE, making him 14 years older than his prospective bride. As you can tell from that name, he was from the Silani branch of the Junii family, one of Rome's oldest dynasties. Indeed, it could trace its tree all the way back to a nephew of the last Roman king, who later became one of the Republic's first consuls. His most illustrious ancestor in recent memory was his grandmother Julia Minor, the granddaughter of Augustus' daughter Julia and his best mate Marcus Agrippa. Being a member of the extended Julio Claudian family, as well as being descended from such illustrious ancestors, he was an obvious choice for Claudius to be his son in law, and he ensured that the young man had quite the career while his daughter grew up. In 41, he was made prefect of the city of Rome, a classic post to give to a promising young nobleman, and then, in 43, he accompanied the emperor on his invasion of Britannia, along with another one of Claudius' sons-in-law. Unfortunately, the sources don't go into any detail about Lucius Solanus' actual involvement in the British campaign, but we do know that he made sure that he shared in the glory and the spoils. It was he that was given the honour of announcing of the conquest of Britain to the people of Rome and was also gifted triumphal regalia, a huge honour in the triumph held to celebrate Claudius's great victory. In addition, he also had great gladiatorial games thrown in his honour and was permitted to distribute money to the people on the emperor's behalf, another important raising of his profile. He was also admitted to a couple of important priesthoods and was made Questa in 48, a few years earlier than was typical for a man of his age. Now, I'm aware that, so far, all I've done is given a profile of Octavia's husband without talking about her much at all, but the issue is, I haven't been able to find anything about her around this time. None of the sources give a damn, and I'm yet to find a modern historian who's gone to the trouble of doing some serious digging on her story. Therefore, we're left with having to make some very broad assumptions. She would have grown up in the palace, with all the comfort and luxury that that would entail. Her education would likely have been typical of Roman noble girls of the age, and would have probably been fairly sheltered, kept away from the repression of the Messalina-era Claudian court. One imagines that she spent some time with her betrothed husband while growing up, as it was important that they develop a bond, but nothing of course could happen physically until she came of age. Other than that, we've got nothing, so we must go back to her betrothed. In 49, at the age of 22, Lucius Solanus found himself in an incredibly enviable position. He was probably Rome's most promising young man, and in just a few short years, he would officially marry Claudius's daughter, and maybe even father the next emperor. But It was not to be, as his whole career, and indeed life, would all come crashing down very quickly after the death of Messalina, an accession to the emperorship of our old friend Agrippina. We talked about this in episode 1.14, as it was a great example of Agrippina using her noble contacts to bring down a political rival. To recap, she had her attack dog Vitellius do some digging into Lucius Solanus' past, and he managed to dredge out a rumour of some sort of illicit relationship between him and his sister. Possibly incestuous, maybe just inappropriate. Either way, it was enough to ruin his reputation and have Claudius annul the betrothal. Then, if you remember, she and Claudius agreed that the best thing for the dynasty would be for their two children from previous marriages, Nero and Octavia, to be betrothed to each other. It took a lot of clever politicking from Agrippina to get this done, as the notion of step-siblings marrying each other was not only gross, but illegal as well. What I didn't mention in that episode is that one of the ways they found to get around the weirdness of the whole thing was to get Octavia adopted into another family, so as to lessen the incestuousness of the match. The sources are, though, not so good as to tell us which family that would be. That would be making things far too easy for future historians. At this stage, that of betrothal, the couple were still too young to wed, as Octavia was still four years away from coming of age. However, since they were both children, the Emperor and Empress, they likely would have spent quite a bit of time together in the coming years before they married, and been able to get to know each other at least a little. As I've said a few times, the sources offer very little information on in Octavia's life. But there is one thing out there that may offer some clues a play that was written many years later by an unknown playwright called simply Octavia. This tragedy, for it could only be a tragedy given the subject matter, largely focuses on the final years of her life, but through a series of flashbacks it does look back to this time. It makes it very clear that the couple did not get on right from the very outset, and that even after they did get married, the union was never consummated. Now, you don't need me to tell you that historical plays don't make for especially reliable historical sources. You only have to look at the works of William Shakespeare to come to that conclusion. Great drama and accurate historical scholarship rarely go hand in hand. That said, given what is soon to come, it does seem fairly likely. Later on in Nero's reign the Emperor would say of Octavia, quote, she ought to be content with the insignia of wifehood, basically saying that she ought to be content with me the title of wife and empress, and otherwise just leave him be. But I've jumped ahead of myself a tad. Nero and Octavia were indeed married on the 9th of June, 53, fulfilling Agrippina's grand design of securing her son's position in the succession. This was the main purpose of this match, and now that it had been accomplished. All he had to do now was to play happy families until the time came when his wife's father died and he could take his place. When that happened, thanks to the murderous intervention of Agrippina, Nero became emperor and Claudia Octavia became empress of Rome. But remember, empress wasn't really a title back then. It was a kind of recognised position, much like, say, being the spouse of the UK Prime Minister is. But it wasn't an official role, like, say, the office of First Lady in the United States. There was no formal or official role for the wife of the Emperor, no duties or powers. What role there was had been carved out by Livia and then built on by Mussolini and Agrippina. It was determined by the force of their personality, skill and family lineage. It was a job where the holder would make of it what they wanted and what they could. Nothing would fall into their lap. And it's unclear as to whether Octavia did hold any ambitions of holding real power. But if she had, she had three main obstacles. The first was her husband. If we look at the three Roman empresses to this point who held any real power, Livia, Messalina and Agrippina, and I guess maybe at a pinch she could include Cesonia as well, it is clear that central to their success was the strong bond that they shared with their husband. They had no hope of achieving anything of note if they didn't have his support, as he was the font of all power. If it was clear that her husband viewed her as a power in Rome, that she had his ear and confidence, then she could essentially act in his name. And so long as she maintained her position, she would be a serious force to be reckoned with but as I've already said, Nero didn't much care for her. Sure, she had played a role in making him emperor, but what use was she now? Related to this is the second reason, her age. She had become Empress of Rome at the age of just 14, younger than any of her powerful predecessors. She had no time to build up a power base, to make a name for herself. Yes, her father had been emperor of Rome. But in the eyes of her contemporaries, she was tainted by the actions of her mother, who had turned out to be a murderous, whorish, bigamist traitor. Now, she was an orphan, stuck adrift in a court surrounded by big, powerful personalities, and frankly, she never stood a chance of keeping up. And that brings us to the final reason. Agrippina. I've said it many times, there was only room for one powerful woman in ancient Rome and that vacancy was very much taken up by the Emperor's mother, who, in this first stage of Nero's reign, was absolutely top dog. And what hope did Octavia have, with all those disadvantages that I've just mentioned, of usurping Agrippina's position? Therefore, it is very unsurprising that Octavia was not an Empress of any real influence, and her poor relationship with Nero is shown very clearly in a couple of episodes related in the sources. I've already told you about one of them, the bit where he stated that his wife should be content with her title and nothing more. Another came at the moment when he had her brother Britannicus murdered. Remember, he was poisoned at a big fancy dinner with all the great and good present, among them being Agrippina and Octavia. The sources are at great pains to remind us that she was present and shocked by what she saw there, and it's clear that that was no accident. Nero could have had his stepbrother killed at a smaller, more private event, but instead he did it for the whole of Roman society to see. He was sending out a message to everyone, his wife very much included, that he could have any of them killed for any reason and at any time. While their relationship had never been particularly good, it worsened after Nero's first year or so in power, thanks to the declining influence of Agrippina. The Nero-Octavia marriage was very much her plan, and one of her proudest achievements. Therefore, as Nero's relationship with his mother began to fail, chafing as he was under her influence, he began to lash out at everyone associated with her. This meant that Octavia was caught in this crossfire. Nero saw her as the embodiment of his mother's interference, and this meant that she was persona non grata. This tethered Octavia's fortunes to Agrippina's standing with Nero. And as the relationship between mother and son continued to sour, so did that between husband and wife. And there was nothing that poor Octavia could do about it. By now it was clear that Octavia's position as empress was severely waning. Tacitus states that, quote, For whether from some whim of fate or because the illicit is stronger than the licit, He abhorred his wife, Octavia, in spite of her high descent and proved honour. This made a lot of Nero's advisers decidedly nervous. For them, just as for Agrippina, Octavia was the perfect match. Of course, she was from an illustrious family, but more importantly for them, she was not from some opposing power base. If Nero was to divorce her and marry the daughter of another powerful Roman family... Then this could upset the apple cart and lead to their fall. Therefore, they would have discouraged Nero from liaisons with any powerful Roman ladies and delighted when he engaged in trice with lower born women. This dilemma is discussed by Tacitus in relation to his affair with Actae. Quote Nero had slipped into a love affair with a freedwoman by the name of Actae, while even his older friends, here, by the way, he's referring to Seneca and Burrus, showed no reluctance that a girl of that standing should gratify, without injury to anyone, the cravings of the emperor. There was always the risk that, if he were checked in this passion, his instincts could break out at the expense of women of rank. This fear of some woman of rank coming onto the scene meant that Nero's advisors essentially acted as his wingmen, Indeed, Seneca had one of his men pretend to be Actae's lover and would pass her gifts, ostensibly from him, but really from Nero, in front of everybody. Of course, everyone knew what was really going on, but that wasn't really the point. As I said before, Nero loved theatricality, and he loved Actae. I discussed in a previous episode how Agrippina's overreaction to Nero's relationship with Actae caused great damage in her relationship with her son. But what it did do was bring her and Octavia close together. But while this may have been a temporary source of comfort for Octavia, it only worsened her predicament. As Nero saw this as yet another example of his mother trying to worm her way into his life. Octavia's absence of any real power is shown in the fact that for the next few years she doesn't show up at all in the sources. That said, Agrippina's death in 59 was a massive blow to her. Octavia's fate had been tethered to Agrippina's more or less since she and Nero had originally become betrothed, and while Agrippina had been alive, she had offered some measure of protection. Now, with Agrippina gone, Octavia was extremely vulnerable. That said, the fact that she held on for another three years despite Nero's complete disdain for her does speak to the fact that she still had protectors at court. The reasons why Nero's advisors were so keen to keep his relationship going with Actae and prevent him from seeking nobler female pastures still stood. They advised Nero to keep his wife. He didn't have to like her, but she was his best option if he wanted to remain secure in power. Cassius Dio states that Burrus, endeavoured to prevent Nero from divorcing Octavia, and once said to him, well, then give her back her dowry, by which he meant the sovereignty. Therefore, Octavia managed to stick around for a little while. Belittled, powerless, but still safe. But her luck would not last forever, as eventually Nero found a new lover who had her eyes on the Her name was Poppea Sabina. Now, of course, we'll talk more about Poppea next week in her own episode, but it's worth quickly mentioning her here. For you Tudophiles out there, you can make a slight case here that we have a Catherine of Aragon versus Anne Boleyn thing going on here. On one hand, you have the existing wife, noble, dignified, of unimpeachable reputation, but also childless, and not really doing it for you anymore sexually. And on the other, you have a younger, prettier, more exciting woman who has the intelligence and ambition to try and usurp the existing order. Now, of course, the Tudor-era version of this was far more complicated than just that, and this is as well, but I think you can see echoes of the words of Tacitus and Suetonius in the accounts of men like Eustace Chapuis. Poppea had been around for some time, but now she teamed up with a new cadre of advisors that replaced Burrus and Seneca in 62, including a new Praetorian prefect named Tigellinus, and gave Nero the confidence and impetus to finally go through with his long-designed divorce from Octavia. The final trigger for this came when Poppaea became pregnant. Now, we don't know whether Octavia was unable to have children, or if she and Nero never had kids for lack of trying, the sources certainly seem to suggest the latter. And while this may have been part of their attempt to make us seem all the more virtuous, I am inclined to believe them here. But the fact was that Nero had no brothers or sisters. And while there were other Julio-Claudians out there, there was no consensus heir to the throne. Now, this had not stopped other emperors from naming non-direct blood relatives as their successors. Indeed, every succession so far had gone that way but passing it from father to son would be preferable. Of course, if Nero had really cared all that much about the succession, he may have had sex with his wife once or twice, but he doesn't seem to have done so. In any event, Prepaea's pregnancy and the changing of the guard in his team of advisors led to the decision to divorce Octavia. Of course, it being Nero, their plan would not be a nice simple one. No, like everything he did, it was massively overcomplicated. He went with a two-pronged approach. First, accusing her of infertility, which, while somewhat of an unfair charge, was at least hard to defend against. But she also was accused of having had an affair with a flautist named Eucharist. Here is the charge as related by Tastus. The man fixed on as the guilty lover was one by name of Eucharist, an Alexandrian by birth, skilled in singing to the flute. As a consequence, her slave girls were examined under torture, and though some were forced by the intensity of agony into admitting falsehoods, most of them persisted in upholding the virtue of their mistress. One of them said, in answer to the furious menaces of Tigellinus, that Octavius' vulva was purer than his mouth. This was no way to treat the daughter of a former emperor, and anyone who knew Octavia would have known that these accusations were groundless. But, using the allegations as an excuse, Nero divorced Octavia, sending her off to Campania under military guard, and married Poppaea less than two weeks later. Being Nero, he also added a little twist to the knife, gifting his now ex-wife two villas in which to live, both of them belonging to now disgraced former advisors. These were cursed roofs under which she was now living. If Nero had thought that he would be able to get away with this without any pushback, he was sorely mistaken. First of all, there were big protests from the common people of Rome. Then, a rumour spread around, the provenance of which is anyone's guess, that Nero had had a big change of heart and planned to ditch Poppaea and bring back Octavia. This led to a huge celebration in the streets. Uh, quickly got out of hand. Tacitus describes this thusly quote, Then came a rumour that Nero had repented of his outrage and recalled Octavia to his side. At once exulting crowds scaled the capital. They hurled down the effigies of Popeia, they carried the statues of Octavia shoulder high, strewed them with flowers, appraised them in the Forum and the temples. There was even a burst of applause to the emperor, men hailing the recalled Octavia. And then, when they were filling the palace itself with their numbers and their cheers, bands of soldiers emerged and scattered them in disorder with whip cuts and levelled weapons. This clearly demonstrated the potential threat that Octavia posed. She may be in exile and under military guard, but what if she managed to escape? What if she then married a powerful Roman noble? His power, matched with her lineage, would be a significant threat to Nero's rule. I'm sure that, beyond the grave, Burrus was yelling, I told you so, at Nero right now. It's worth saying that we have absolutely no idea whether Octavia had such pretensions or desires whatsoever in this direction. Her motives and desires are entirely absent in the sources, and so it's hard to know if she actually posed this threat. That said it didn't really matter, because Nero certainly believed that she was dangerous. Therefore, much as he had with his mother, he realised that for the stability of his rule, he had to end the threat posed by Octavia once and for all. Again, like with the murder of Agrippina, he turned to Anicetus. This time, the engineer turned admiral didn't have to come up with convoluted plans involving collapsing ceilings or splitting ships. No, he simply had to sign a letter, quote-unquote, confessing to having had an affair with Octavia. The problem, as Nero saw it, was that his accusations of Octavia having had an affair with a slave musician had not been believed, because no one thought that she would have stooped so low as to have slept with someone so low-born. Therefore, accusing her of sleeping with someone higher up in society and having the, quote-unquote, evidence to prove it should do the trick. Tacitus has Nero saying that Anicetus had, quote, come to the rescue of the prince's life against a plotting mother. Close hand was a chance of winning no less gratitude by ridding him of a malignant wife. No violence or weapons were needed, only let him confess to an intrigue with Octavia. As a reward, Anicetus was granted a comfortable retirement in Sardinia. But it was bought with Octavia's blood. She was taken from a previously fairly comfortable house arrest in Campania to a tiny island off the mainland, the same one indeed that Agrippina Major, Nero's grandmother, had been sent to by Tiberius. There, far away from any friendly gaze, she was executed. Tacitus describes her death in gruesome and quite possibly imagined detail. Quick content warning, if you're a bit squeamish, you may wish to skip ahead the next 20 seconds or so. Quote, she was tied fast with cords, and the veins were opened in each limb. Then, as the blood, arrested by terror, ebbed too slowly, she was suffocated in the bath heated to an extreme temperature. As further and more hideous cruelty, the head was amputated and carried to Rome. It's worth reminding you that Tacitus was absolutely no friend of Nero's, and so the cruelty of this execution is probably exaggerated. That said, the bit about the opening of the veins does seem to be correct, as Nero wanted to put out the story that she had committed suicide. He didn't want the stain of being a wife murderer to fall upon him. If that was his plan, though, he rather undermined it by calling a day of celebration when news came back to Rome of Octavia's death. He told the people that the empire had been delivered of a traitor, Great offerings were made to the gods to mark this wondrous day, and the Senate was forced to vote a day of thanksgiving. Statues of Octavia would have been pulled down or defaced in an attempt to remove her from the public consciousness. What a farce! Tacitus sums up Octavia's very sad life vastly. Quote, For Octavia, from the first, her wedding day had been her funeral. Brought as she was into a house where she had nothing but scenes of mourning. Her father and, an instant afterwards, her brother having been snatched from her by poison. Then, a slave girl raised above mistress, Popea, married only to ensure her wife's ruin, and, to end all, an accusation more bitter than any doom. This narrative, that of the tragic star-crossed figure, is a little one-dimensional, but, unfortunately, it's all we have. I have absolutely no doubt that Octavia was a far more interesting character with a more nuanced story to tell, but it's lost to history. What I've told you is all I can piece together from the fragments of information that we have on her. She is barely mentioned in most studies of Nero. But her death here is seen as part of a great turning point in his reign. Up to this point, Nero had been a fairly popular emperor, but the cruel way that he had treated his much-loved wife completely changed the public perception of him. It was a PR disaster, and it was all downhill for him from here on in. Not that that would have been any consolation to Octavia, of course. Next week, we will look at the woman who replaced Octavia at Nero's side. Poppaea Sabina is seen in the sources as being the archetypal other woman who stole the emperorship from the beloved Octavia, She was a force to be reckoned with, a personality who wished for a piece of the action. But sadly, she would eventually end up facing the same fate as her predecessor.